From the mind of a maniac. Eight horror stories that are interconnected either significantly or slightly and are all bundled into one gigantic collection. That's right, you get eight books for the price of one. Maniac on the Loose, The Nine Lives of Ski Mask, The Craving, The Caretakers, It Lives in the Attic, Goat Sucker, Spirit Stalkers, Hell is Full. All eight books for the price of one. Go to Amazon and search for From the Mind of a Maniac or go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. <laughs> Sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. The Bat. Back in the 1980s, there was a huge rock star named Jane Citrus. For a few years, she had top hit after top hit. She was a twig-like teenager with bleach blonde hair. Jane Citrus was controversial due to her tendency to dress provocatively. On top of that, many of her hit songs had sexual themes. My buddy Kurt was a huge Jane Citrus fan. He loved her. He had all three of her albums. His room was wallpapered with her posters. He didn't mind crossing state lines to see her in concert multiple times. One of the things about Jane Citrus was that she loved to make music videos. At least half of the songs on her albums had accompanying videos. The videos of her songs were like mini-movies, and Jane Citrus always played the lead role. Kurt used to go on and on about what an incredible actress Jane Citrus was. He was convinced that one day she'd be in a movie and would win an Oscar for Best Actress. He used to say over and over that Jane Citrus will be up on that stage holding the Oscar. After a while, it started to get on my nerves. I mean, she seemed like a decent actress based on the videos, but there was no way in the world she was ever going to win an Oscar. No way. Never. One day I told him that. He replied with, put your money where your mouth is. Fine, I said. I'll give you a thousand to one odds that Jane Citrus never wins an Oscar for Best Actress. He said, oh, she'll be up there holding that Oscar one day. You're on. I'll bet you 100 bucks. And that was the bet. If Jane Citrus ever won an Oscar for Best Actress, I'd owe Kurt $100,000. If she never won, he'd owe me 100. We even wrote it all down as a contract and signed it in front of his dad, who happened to be a lawyer. It was a stupid bet on my part. I mean, for Kurt, he could win the bet if she ever won the Oscar. But how was I supposed to win? 
As long as she was alive, there was a possibility that she could win an Oscar. So Kurt always had a chance, no matter how ridiculously remote it was. Me, on the other hand, the only way I could win the bet would be if Jane Citrus died. And then all I'd get out of it was a measly 100 bucks. Yeah, a really stupid bet on my part. Fast forward 30 years. I have a good job and I've managed to save up a nice amount of money, but it's nowhere near what it would be if I weren't divorced and forced to pay alimony. Kurt and I lost contact when we both went away to different colleges. As for Jane Citrus, she fell off the map. When the 1980s ended and the 1990s grunge bands took over, she just vanished. All three of her albums were fantastic successes. She made enough money off of all of those that she could live like a queen for the rest of her life if she so desired. And maybe that's what she did, I don't know. All I know is it had been over 30 years since anyone had heard of the name Jane Citrus. Then a funny thing happened. Last year, a hotshot filmmaker reached out to Jane Citrus and offered her a huge part in his next movie. Apparently this guy had been a big fan and always thought she had acting talent based on her music videos. And just like that, Jane Citrus came out of hiding, took the part, and nailed it. I mean, she absolutely killed in that role. It was one of the best acting jobs I had ever seen. Last week, they announced the Oscar nominations. Jane Citrus is nominated for Best Actress, and according to the odds, she is an overwhelming favorite to win. That's when I remembered the bet. I hoped Kurt had forgotten about that stupid bet, or that maybe he was dead. No such luck. He found me on a social network and sent me a message. He didn't even open his message with, Hi, how you been? No, his opening line of the message was, Remember our bet? Turns out, Kurt became a lawyer like his father and still had the paperwork for the bet. And he made it clear that he had every intention of collecting after Jane Citrus won the Oscar for Best Actress. This would clean me out, and then some. I'd be in serious debt. I'd be in major trouble. I was hoping he was bluffing about still having the contract. Without that, it was his word against mine and I'd be in the clear, so I insisted that he send me a copy. And he did. He still had the contract, and I was screwed. I couldn't let this happen, but what could I do? I looked closer at the contract and something interesting caught my eye. Kurt wrote up the contract back when he was a dim-witted teenager, and the way he worded it was strange. He didn't write down that he won the bet if Jane Citrus won the Oscar for Best Actress. He wrote that he won the bet if Jane Citrus was up on that stage holding the Oscar for Best Actress. What if Jane Citrus died before she won the Oscar? Even if she won the Oscar posthumously, she wouldn't be up on that stage holding the Oscar for Best Actress. She wouldn't be able to. She'd be dead. There was only one thing I could think of to remedy the situation. I had to kill Jane Citrus. I had some vacation time coming to me, so I took two weeks off and began my mission. 
Even though Jane Citrus was getting attention for her acting, she was nowhere near the world-famous celebrity she was when she was a teenager. See, back then, she was constantly surrounded by beefy security guards who wouldn't let anyone within 10 feet of her. But now, after having been out of the bright limelight for so long, she was leading a more normal lifestyle. It wasn't difficult for me to find her. She lived in a sprawling 400-acre ranch in Montana. Three stories wrapped around porches, bay windows. It was rather spectacular, to say the least. Bought and paid for with her teenage success money. The ranch was off the grid, and she had a live-in maid and a groundskeeper. She also had several large dogs and lots of signs expressing the fact that the ranch had security cameras all over it so killing her in her home was out of the question. But I was able to get close enough to observe her comings and goings. After a week of observation, I had her routine down pretty well. She was a night owl. She stayed up all night and went to bed in the morning. Every night just before sundown, she drove into town alone. It was a small town about 10 minutes away, which consisted of mostly old brick buildings. She would park her car in front of a two-story place called the Lazy Coffee Shop and get a big cup of coffee and a donut. She'd sit by a corner window on the second floor and slowly ingest her coffee and donut while relaxing and looking out the window upon the quaint little town outside. She'd then get back into her car and go back to the ranch. From there, everything she did was done out of the home. The coffee shop run was the opportunity I needed to snuff the bet out of existence. I started following Jane Citrus to the lazy coffee shop, and I watched her. I had to wait for just the perfect moment. After a few nights, the stars aligned for me. All the parking spots in front of the lazy coffee shop were full, forcing Jane Citrus to drive down a long, lonely alley and park behind the building. After she entered the coffee shop, I gazed about to make sure no one else was around. The only person I noticed was a short, plump fellow near the edge of the sidewalk. After a moment, he stepped away and disappeared into the shadows, so I took that moment to dart behind the building. Her car was the only one back there. The area was dimly lit. It was perfect. I snuck behind a large dumpster that was about 10 feet from her vehicle and waited for her. It wasn't long before she returned to her vehicle. I could hear her footsteps coming all the way down the alley. I pulled my razor-sharp 6-inch hunting knife from its sheath and got ready to attack. Once she rounded the corner and approached her vehicle, I launched myself toward her, holding the knife high in the air ready to strike. She turned around and let out a scream as I reached her. The Bat, Jane Citrus. Most people know me as Jane Citrus, but my real name is Jane Wojohowicz. I made a fortune in the late 1980s being someone I was not. I basically played a character named Jane Citrus, who was invented by my manager. 
My manager felt like if I pranced around in scantily clad outfits and sang about taboo subjects, it would create controversy, the controversy would create publicity, and the publicity would sell albums. She was correct. Don't get me wrong, I could sing well, and I'm a very entertaining performer on stage, but it's the sexual image that created the buzz. I would strut around half-naked and sing inappropriate songs. My biggest hit was called Pop Goes My Virginity. In reality, I never had sex until my wedding night when I was 24 years old. I could only keep up the facade of Jane Citrus for so long. After a few years, to the chagrin of my manager, I voluntarily pulled the plug on my music career. I made enough money that I didn't have to do it anymore if I didn't want to, and I didn't want to. I married the man I loved, and we lived a happy life together until he passed away three years ago from injuries sustained by falling from a horse. I've been alone ever since as far as romantic relationships go. I have a maid and a groundskeeper at my ranch, and I'm close with them. I also have four bull mastiffs, three horses, five cows, and eight chickens to keep me company. And that's all I need. I never planned on entering the spotlight again, but when that hotshot filmmaker approached me about being in his latest movie, I was intrigued. My favorite part of my music career was making the music videos. I enjoyed acting. It was a lot of fun and I was quite good at it. Looking back, performing in music videos was the only thing I missed about the old days. It did take some coaxing, but eventually I agreed to be in the movie, and in doing so, I found my true calling. I was made to act. I did it for the love of the art, not any kind of accolades or awards. Getting nominated for an Oscar is flattering, but I wish I hadn't been nominated. I don't like the publicity that comes with it. I didn't want to be standing up on that stage holding an Oscar for Best Actress. I had already made up my mind that I would not go to the ceremony. The hotshot director already asked me to play a role in his next movie, and I accepted. I can see myself doing this for some time. It brings me joy. My only reluctance is due to the negativity the spotlight brings. I had multiple stalkers when I was younger, and one persistent one that occasionally shows his face to this day. He's a short, plump man who always sports a five o'clock shadow. He's never assaulted me, threatened me, or done anything illegal. He just shows up from time to time and watches me. I'll see him standing across a street, or at a store, or at the gas station. He's always at a distance and never approaches me. He just stares at me. I've alerted the police on multiple occasions, but because he's never done anything to cause me harm, and because he always keeps a respectable distance, they can't do much about him. I spotted him just last week. Every night I like to have coffee and a donut at the Lazy Coffee Shop in the small town near my ranch. I sit on the second floor where it's quiet and relaxed while gazing out over the town. I noticed him at a street corner standing under a street light staring up at me. When he realized that I had spotted him, he acted nervous and ran off. I told my maid and groundskeeper about the sighting. 
They insisted I stop going to my favorite coffee shop, but I refused to let someone else dictate how I would live my life. It was this attitude that kept me from going back home when there were no parking spots in the front of the lazy coffee shop, forcing me to park in the lonely, dim-lit back alleyway. After I went in, sat down, had my coffee and donut, I walked back down that long, lonely alley to my car. As I rounded the corner, pulled the car keys from my pocket, and reached for my car door, I heard a rustling sound coming from behind the dumpster. When I looked up, I saw a man dressed in dark clothing running at me, holding a knife in an attack position. I couldn't see the man well, but it had to be the stalker. He had just been waiting for the right time to kill me, and it appeared that tonight would be the night he succeeded. Then another man appeared behind the attacker, a short, plump man. That was my stalker. But if that was my stalker, who was the man who was trying to kill me? I let out a scream and instinctively backed up until I hit the concrete parking bumper which tripped me to the ground. As I lay on the ground helpless, I watched on as my stalker grabbed the attacker's arm, wrestled the knife from him, and then punched him square on the jaw with the left hook that would have made Joe Frazier proud. The attacker fell unconscious to the ground like a sack of potatoes. The relief that washed over me was fleeting as the stalker turned and gazed at me with intense eyes. He stepped over the body of the attacker and walked toward me. I was correct. He was just waiting for the right time. He was going to kill me. He wasn't going to let someone else do it. He wanted to do it himself. I screamed as he approached me and reached into his coat pocket. The Bat, The Stalker. I love Jane Citrus. I loved her since I was a teenager. The way she would gyrate around on stage wearing barely nothing, she took my breath away. But it wasn't just her sex appeal. I genuinely enjoyed her voice and her ability as a performer. And when she acted in all those music videos, I thought she was fantastic. I could honestly envision her standing on a stage holding an Oscar for Best Actress one day. I followed her around all over the world. You see, there was something I wanted. Something only she could give me. And I was going to get it by any means necessary. But the timing had to be right. A quiet, dimly lit location with nobody else around would be ideal. I wanted to be alone with her. I wanted her to remember me. Yes, the, the timing had to be perfect. It had been roughly 30 years now as I've waited inhumanly patient for the perfect moment that has never come. Until tonight. She parked behind the building of the lazy coffee shop, her favorite place. She goes there every night just after dark for coffee and a donut. I hid in the shadows and watched as she ate and drank. She spotted me last week. I was extra careful tonight and she didn't see me. When I witnessed her preparing to leave the coffee shop, I bolted down the alley and hid behind a light post. The setting was perfect. It was everything I had ever envisioned. Tonight was the night. 
As she rounded the corner of the building and headed for her car, I was about to rush toward her, but some guy with a knife dashed out from behind a dumpster. This bastard was going to ruin everything. I sprinted out from behind the light post and engaged with the attacker. He was bigger than me, but I had the element of surprise on my side. I was able to wrestle the knife out of his hand. I then let loose with a left hook that collided with his jaw, just like the left hook that Joe Frazier floored Muhammad Ali with in their first fight. With the attacker subdued, and Jane Citrus lying on the ground helpless, the time had finally come. I stepped over the attacker and approached her. I could feel the nerves welling within my body as I pulled the necessary tools for this task out of my coat pocket. Tonight was the night. I held out my pad of paper and pen. My voice was a little shaky, but I did it. Can I have your autograph? Skeleton Face My name is Sabrina Sharp. I'm a model, so it should go without saying that I'm beautiful. I have long, straight, shiny black hair. My skin is smooth and perfectly proportioned in every way. My body is slender and fit. I'm in my late twenties. I'm what employers are always looking for. The only reason any other model gets a high-end job is if the employer needs more than one model, or if my schedule is already booked. The best gigs are always mine, if I want them. Don't get me wrong, I'm not without my competition. A woman named Courtney Kane is my closest competitor. She's quite the beauty. She resembles me, but comes up just short of my perfection in every department. In the industry, Courtney Kane is known as the poor man's Sabrina Sharp. You'd think Courtney would be satisfied with my scraps, but we models are a competitive bunch. No model likes looking up at someone else. They all want to be Queen of the Hill. Although I knew Courtney was bubbling with jealousy, she was always cordial to me when we were face to face. As was the case just recently when she offered me a bottle of white tea seasoned with goji berries and rose petals. She knew this was my favorite. I was rather parched that day and guzzled the drink down like a frat boy shotgunning a beer. That night, I was awakened in the middle of the night with a tingling pain on the right side of my face, similar to when your arm or leg falls asleep, but the pins and needles sensation was isolated to my face, especially around my right eye. As a model, my instinct was to run to the mirror and make sure my appearance had not been altered in any negative way that could impact my career. I let out an audible gasp when I saw myself. 
There was a dark ring around my right eye. It was almost like a bruise, but had a more permanent feel to it. I went into a full-blown panic attack. I started hyperventilating to the point where I passed out. I woke up the next morning to the sound of my cell phone chirping. It was my agent freaking out that I hadn't shown up for a gig on time or something to that effect. I didn't care about that at all. What I cared about was the inferno-like burning sensation cascading over my face. I rushed to the mirror and screamed. The area around my right eye was solid black, as was the majority of my nose. The rest of my face had turned extremely pale, almost white. What was happening to me? I had to get to a doctor. I grabbed a shawl and a hat from my coat rack, opened the door, and froze when a realization came over me. I couldn't be seen like this. I got on the phone and told my agent to cancel all of my bookings, and I sheltered myself into my apartment. Over the passing days and weeks, several people from my agency and manager's offices came knocking on my door to make sure I was okay and to find out what was wrong. I shouted at them all to go away. I stayed all alone in my apartment and transformed. After a month, the majority of my face was skeleton white. Dark black lines accented my lips and the contours of my face. My crystal blue eyes altered into white ice. I had become Skeleton Face. I spent most nights crying myself to sleep and trying to figure out how this happened. It didn't take me long to make some not-so-brilliant deductions and conclude that Courtney Kane had put something into the white tea she gave me that day. Something that would knock me off the model mountain and allow her to hoist herself to the top. Then something unusual happened. I looked into the mirror and realized that even my skeleton face could not conceal my beauty. And I embraced it. For the first time in over a month, I left my apartment. My first stop was the magazine shoot that Courtney Kane would be at. It was my gig, but the poor man Sabrina Sharp had the job now. I burst into her dressing room. The blood drained from her face when she saw me. She attempted to scream for help, but could only manage a tiny, pathetic gasp. I quickly informed her that she was in no harm. I just wanted to make sure she was fully well aware that I knew it was her who did this to me. I also told her to enjoy her moment in the spotlight, because it would be short-lived. From there I went to my agent's office. There were gasps as I strolled confidently through the secretary's area to my agent's office. My agent about had a coronary. She thought this was a face tattoo and kept going on and on about how hideous I looked and how I ruined my career and I would never work again. I didn't care what she thought. I grabbed her by her power suit's lapels and slammed her against the wall. Look at me. 
She fought against my grip at first, but as she finally began to calm, I spoke in a firm, serious tone. Look at me. She took a few deep breaths and then focused on my face. Her eyes gazed over every centimeter of my new face. Now tell me, do you think I'm ugly? She realized I was serious and inspected my face closer. She even ran the back of her hand down the side of my perfect cheek, and a smile came across her face. No. She began to shake her head profusely. No. You're not ugly. You're beautiful. You're just as beautiful as ever, more so. And she was correct. My agent immediately began working the phones, and now I'm in more demand than I've ever been. So many models look alike nowadays. Many clients welcome something unique. And my new face has opened even more opportunities for me. I'm very popular within the horror world now. I'm on movie posters, magazines, you may have even seen me on a book cover or two. Or five. Eastern Kentucky, near the Appalachian Mountains, the Gulahee Cemetery can be found. Folks around those parks nicknamed it Ghouls in the Graveyard. It's one of the oldest and largest cemeteries east of the Mississippi River. It is also considered to be the most haunted cemetery on the entire continent. The following are some of the creepiest encounters people have had when getting too close to the ghouls in the graveyard. The Playground Near one of the corners of the Gulahee Cemetery is an old playground. No one seems to know why there is a playground within the grounds of the cemetery. I can only surmise that it was installed so that kids had a place to play while adults visited grave sites of loved ones. Nowadays the playground is run down. An old metal slide is now nothing more than a thin, frail slab of rust infested with an array of jagged holes. 
The foundation of a swing set now sags with age. A few strands of tarnished chain still dangle uselessly. What was once a spinning merry-go-round is now just a corroded circle of metal, half buried in the ground and overtaken by weeds. It must have been decades since any kids have ever graced the playground with their presence. I used to have to pass by that section of graveyard every day on my way home from school. I was usually accompanied by several other kids from my neighborhood. For some reason, being amongst a group of other kids made it a little less frightening to walk by. But on the rare occasions, when I had to walk by the cemetery by myself, boy, that old playground sure gave me the heebie-jeebies. One day I got in trouble in school for pulling Missy Smith's pigtails. I had to stay after school and write, I will not pull Missy's pigtails a hundred times on the blackboard. It was late autumn, so by the time I was finished, it was getting dark. It was a long walk from school. I ran as fast as I could in an attempt to pass by the cemetery before the sky turned black, but I failed. It was a crisp, cool night, but there was no breeze at all. Not one dead leaf on the road was stirring, so it sent shivers down my spine when I heard the lonely squeak of the swing set's old chains swaying back and forth on their own. I could also hear the popping of metal and a sliding sound as if someone were going down that old slide, which was impossible in its current state. If anyone tried to get on that slide, they'd fall right through. And then I heard the laughing. It was the giggle of multiple children. They sounded distant, and there was a strange reverberation to their laughter. I instantly broke out in goosebumps. I wanted to run, but my legs felt heavy like I was stuck in wet cement. I screamed when I heard the voice. Come play with us. It was the voice of a small child. I think it was a boy. Come play with us. I swear, the air around me got colder and I was starting to shiver. And the voice continued to beckon me. Come play with us. Finally, my body filled with adrenaline and my legs kicked into gear. I ran away from the cemetery like a rocket. The creepiest thing of the entire night was the final time I heard the voice. I was far away from the playground at that point and the voice was very distant and deep, almost demonic in tone. Come play with us. The Whistling there are a lot of infamous people buried at the Gulahi Cemetery. One of those people is Hans Werner, better known as Hans the Butcher. He was a full-bodied German immigrant who butchered his wife and kids. Neighbors claimed to have heard a ruckus next door during the night of the murders, but didn't think it was anything serious because they kept hearing Hans whistling through the night. Who would suspect such a horror going on while hearing someone whistling? Who could do such a thing? Hans Werner could. He whistled the night away while he cut his wife and kids up in little bits. 
Hans Werner not only pleaded guilty, he actually boasted about the crimes. He was sentenced to hang. Witnesses say that Hans whistled a cheerful tune as he walked to the gallows. His whistling continued as they pulled the hood down over his face and didn't stop until the floor dropped and his neck snapped. Some people claim that they heard whistling for a few seconds as his lifeless body swayed to and fro. Hans is considered to be one of the many ghouls in the graveyard. It is said that if you hear whistling in the graveyard at night, Hans is out and about looking for someone new to butcher. There's a college not too far from the graveyard. Needless to say, the graveyard is home to many pranks that fraternities pull. But it's also just a quiet, creepy place to sit around and have a few beers. And that's what we were doing that night. There were three of us. Me and my buddies Ralph and Richie. We were playing a stupid drinking game. We would do a shot of rum every five minutes until two of us quit or puked. Whoever was left standing would be the victor. I forgot how many shots we wound up doing and who won, but we all got rip-roaring drunk and passed out. I woke up to what I swear was a distant scream. I gazed at my wristwatch and saw that it was 3.30 a.m. I looked around and discovered that I was alone. Those jerks Ralph and Richie took off without me. I was all by myself and surrounded by the sounds of crickets and the whistling of the wind. At least I thought it was the wind, until the whistling transformed into a dark, eerie melody. Everyone knew about the legend of Hans the Butcher, and everyone knew to run if you heard whistling in the graveyard at night. I mean, I had always thought it was just an old wives' tale, but believe me, when I heard the whistling, I opted to believe every bit of the legend of Hans the Butcher, and I ran like the wind. As I ran through the graveyard, I continued to hear the whistling. It was in front of me and getting louder. I was inadvertently running toward it, so I turned around and ran in the other direction. At first, the whistling got further away in the distance, but then I heard it coming from in front of me again, and it was getting closer. I turned again and slammed into the body of a hulking man, and I dropped to the ground. I was relieved when I looked up and saw that it was my friend Ralph. Ralph, you jackass, where were you? I was taking a leak. Did you hear that whistling? Yes, I hear it. Now we need to get out of here. Where's Richie? I, I don't know. I, I woke up and he was gone. Do you think Richie's out there messing with us? Ralph started nodding, but his eyes were filled with fear. Probably, I but I'm not counting on it. Let's, let's just get the hell out of here. We both took off at top speed, hurtling and darting around tombstones like some kind of maniacal obstacle course. And the whistling continued. The creepy melody kept on going, and it kept getting louder, closer. At one point, I could hear footsteps closing in on us, and I swear, I could hear the whistler breathing in between tunes. We both leapt over the short weathered iron fence that surrounded the graveyard, and immediately, the whistling stopped. We called out for Richie over and over, but he never answered. We assumed he went back to the fraternity house, but when we got back, he wasn't there. Nobody had seen him. 
He never returned that night. As a matter of fact, Richie was never seen again. Nobody knows what happened to him. Me and Ralph were questioned over and over by the police. We were never brought up on charges, but to this day, people suspect that we are guilty of some form of foul play. It's not true. Anyone who had been there that night would know it's not true, because they would have heard the terrifying whistling, and they would have no choice but to conclude that Hans the Butcher took another victim. The Caretaker Back in the 1800s, the Gulahi Cemetery had a live caretaker. This was a person who lived on site in a small cabin and would tend to the grounds. One of the early caretakers was a grave robber. It turns out he spent many nights digging up corpses and pillaging their caskets for jewelry, gold and silver teeth, and sometimes even took their clothing. It is said that he even made curtains out of some of the clothing and hung them in the caretaker's quarters. Believe it or not, the caretaker's quarters is still standing. Of course it has long since stopped being used, but it's still there. Now it's dilapidated and rotten, it's partially collapsed, but one of the windows to the old cabin is still visible from the road. It's the very window that once held a curtain made from the clothing of a corpse. Of course, the curtains are long gone and the window is even without glass at this point. I drive by the cemetery on my way home from work every night. I've never told anyone this before, but on more than one occasion, I've driven by the cemetery and I could see a light burning within the caretaker's quarters. And once, as I slowed down to take a long gander at the lit-up cabin, I saw the silhouette of a man pulling a curtain open and staring out at me. The Hitchhiker I'm a businessman. I usually wrap up for work early and I'm always home before dark. That wasn't the case one cold early spring day. I got an influx of reports on my desk shortly before I planned on departing, and it kept me there well into the night. When I left, it was pouring down rain. It was cold enough out there for me to see my own breath. I wouldn't have been surprised if the rain had turned into snow or even freezing rain, but it didn't. It was just heavy, sharp blades of frigid rain. I take the interstate home, but apparently there was some major flooding and traffic was backed up for miles, so I took an alternate route that took me by the cemetery. It was such a spine-chilling cemetery, I hated driving by it. There were rows upon rows of monolithic ancient tombstones surrounded by an old gothic-style iron fence. The route I took passed by the front gate of the cemetery. It was a gigantic, foreboding construction with spikes at the top of each iron bar. The gate stood in between two pillars and they were topped by mammoth, hideous concrete gargoyles who seemed to be standing guard over the place. 
Just after passing the front gate, I couldn't believe my eyes. There was a woman slowly walking on the side of the road in the blackness of the night. She had long, dark hair and her soaking wet white nightgown was plastered to her skin. I quickly pulled next to her, stopped, and popped the passenger side door open. Get in! You're gonna freeze to death out there! She stopped, turned, and stared at me for a long moment before finally getting in. And where are you headed? She stared forward. It took her several seconds to respond, but she finally did. Home. Her voice was soft and weak. Well, where's home? Again, she took an unusually long pause before she answered in her frail voice. Just up ahead. It was clear she wasn't the talkative type, so I respected that and kept my mouth shut. I assumed she would alert me as soon as we reached her destination, and I was correct. I just didn't expect for us to still be in front of the cemetery when she did so. Stop. I did as she instructed, and she turned and looked at me. Her skin was silky smooth and her lips dull and dry. There was a sadness to her eyes, but... I could see a gleam within them that told me that she was thankful for my assistance. With that, she stepped out of the car and seemed to glide into the cemetery. I rolled down the window and was about to yell out, Hey, where are you going? But my words, they weren't necessary as she stepped in front of an enormous headstone and vanished into a fog. I was speechless. My ride home was a blur and I didn't sleep a wink. The next morning, the storm had passed and the sun was bright. I, I couldn't leave my strange encounter with that woman as it was. I needed to know more. I got dressed and I drove to the cemetery, parked my car and walked up to the large tombstone at the graveside I saw her go to. The colossal tombstone was shaped like a castle with a concrete angel sitting atop. The name on the tombstone read Francis Copper, 1938 to 1959. On the center of the tombstone was a carved image of the inhabitant of the gravesite. It was the spitting image of the woman I gave the ride to the previous night. The Scratching. I was a sophomore in high school the first time I heard the scratching. Most people found ghouls in the graveyard to be frightening. I didn't. I thought it was beautiful. It was full of ancient artifacts and some of the most intricate concrete carvings anyone will see anywhere. It was surrounded by a lush forest, and the way the sun would break through the branches of the trees and beam onto the headstones was breathtaking. It was relaxing. It was a place of rest. I'd visit it most weekends when I had nothing else to do. To me, it was like a gigantic museum with rows upon rows of exhibits. And best of all, it was free. I went there a lot. I'd pay my respects to the countless resting places of the thousands of people I never knew. I admired the beauty of the tombstone and marveled at the age of some of the relics. It was October 18th, 1986, 
I was just meandering through the graveyard like I often did, just waiting to be blown away by yet another work of art. It was a Saturday, so there were several other people coming and going throughout the day. Just before dusk, most of the visitors left. I was alone. I was getting ready to leave too when I heard it. Scratching. There was no doubt about it. Someone was scratching fast and furious, not unlike a rat inside a wall, digging, trying to find a way out. I followed the sound to a gravesite. The headstone was old and withered away. I could barely make out the engravings, which were mostly worn away by countless storms over the years. I could tell that the first name started with an S and ended with an N. It was only four letters long, but the middle two letters were basically gone, so I guessed the name to be Stan. If there ever was a last name on the stone, it had long since been washed away. I couldn't make out the date the person was born, but I could see his death date. October 18th, 1838. I stood over the gravesite and looked down. There was no mistaking the fact that the scratching was coming from within the coffin under the ground. It could have been a rat or some other animal. That's what I initially thought. But as the scratching continued, I could perfectly envision the enamel of fingernails ripping across the cold, coarse wood of the inner coffin. My feeling was confirmed when I heard the voice. It was a gruff, tattered old voice that came across as more of a moan. Help me! Somebody help me! They buried me alive! There was no way there was anybody still alive in that gravesite. It had been untouched for years. There were various shrubs and weeds growing from within. So who was down there trying to tear through the wood of their coffin with their fingernails? It had to be Stan. But Stan had long since been dead, and his casket had likely rotted away to dirt. So it dawned on me that this had to be Stan's ghost. So I yelled down to him. You're dead. You've been dead for over a hundred years. As soon as I said that, the frantic scratching stopped, and the frightened old voice went silent. I went back the next day and heard nothing, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. I kept going to the cemetery over and over again just to make sure Stan wasn't scratching anymore. I never heard a peep from the grave again until October 18th, 1987, exactly one year later and exactly 140 years since Stan was buried alive. His old voice was filled with fear as he cried out for help. I could hear his panicked scratching as he attempted to claw his way through the wood and dirt to draw in breath. I spoke loudly. Stan, you're not alive. You're dead. And just like the year before, the terrified voice and the morbid scratching stopped. Ever since then, I always make a point to go to Ghouls in the Graveyard on October 18th to remind Stan 
that he is dead so that he may rest in peace. The Vampire One of the oldest tombstones at the Gulahi Cemetery is also the most mysterious. There is no name or date on the stone, just one unusually deep engraving written in Latin. The itching says, Lamia Ioset Hic. Translated to English, it reads, The Vampire Lies Here. Some people claim to have seen a dark, shadowy figure next to the tombstone. Others have reported strong impulses to get closer to the gravesite, as if being drawn in by an unknown source. I've always been fascinated by vampire lore and made a point to visit the mysterious grave. Most sightseers to the gravesite would come during the day, snap some photos, and be satisfied. But I did my research and discovered that all of the encounters with the shadowy figure took place late at night between midnight and 3.30 a.m. And I think I may be the first person to put together the odd coincidence that every single report of being compelled to walk toward the grave took place on a Wednesday night, only during the month of November. So I visited the gravesite on a Wednesday night at 2 o'clock a.m. in the middle of November. The night was still and crisp. There were no signs of wildlife, and I neither saw nor heard any other sign of another person being at the cemetery that night. I approached the grave. The tombstone was smaller than I expected and nondescript in shape. It was rather bland and boring, to be quite honest. But something about the plain aspect of the tombstone made that deep Latin etching even creepier. I stood and looked at the tombstone for over an hour. I felt nothing unusual. I saw nothing out of the ordinary. I was quite disappointed. After feeling like I gave myself a substantial amount of time to experience something, I opted to turn and leave. As I took a few steps away from the gravesite and toward the cemetery exit gate, I heard a deep breath behind me. I instantly spun around. What I saw made my heart drop to my stomach. It wasn't a shadowy figure. It was much more than that. It was a woman. She was petite and extremely slender. She was dressed in a black dress and was sitting atop the tombstone. Her skin was ghostly pale. Her hair was long, straight, and shiny black. And her eyes. I'll never forget her eyes. I could not see any white to them. They looked solid black and lifeless like a doll's eyes. She was staring at me. I was scared out of my wits and I wanted to run, but I, I, I couldn't move. And when the chilling woman gestured with her finger to come to her, I couldn't resist. I had to walk forward. I had to go to her. I didn't want to. I wanted to turn around and run, but I had to go to her. I had no choice. As I got closer, I could see a lean tongue emerge from her mouth and slowly slide over her dried lips. This wasn't going to end well for me. I knew that, but I couldn't stop. I was conscious of what was transpiring and well aware that I didn't want it to happen, 
but I was in some kind of trance that I couldn't break. I had to go to her. And I did. As I drew near to the mysterious woman, she reached out for me and opened her mouth, revealing a row of razor teeth. Suddenly, I felt something tugging at the back of my jacket and found myself being pulled away from the eerie feminine specter. Once the woman was out of my sight, I regained my senses and realized that a hefty, gray-haired man was shoving me into a battered pickup truck. As the man stomped on the gas and we sped away from the Gulahee Cemetery, he grabbed me by the shirt and shouted at me, Stupid son of a bitch! Do you have a death wish? Do you? I shook my head. No, no I don't. Then you stay away from that grave, do you hear me? She'll drain your energy, blood, and body. Now stay away from that grave. I followed the old man's advice, and never went back. The Initiation Around these parts, people know the sororities are much more into hazing and initiations than the fraternities are. My particular sorority, which will remain nameless, makes every sorority sister pass through a series of such initiations before they are fully accepted as a true sister. The final initiation of our sorority requires the potential member to spend a night with the Grabbing Ghost. The Grabbing Ghost is one of the many ghouls in the graveyard. Legend has it that if you lay on the Grabbing Ghost's grave, he'll reach up from the depths of the earth and grab you, hold you down, and will never let you go. The spookiest part of the whole thing is the grave itself. The headstone is gone, and the grave is sunken at least a yard into the ground. To lay on it, you actually have to step down into it. Many people claim that they have had a hard time getting up after lying on the grave for a few minutes. But that's all nonsense. I went through this initiation myself. I slept on that grave an entire night, and nothing happened to me other than the fact that I got a good night's sleep. It was a Friday night and one of our sorority pledges had made it to her final initiation. If she spent a night on the grabbing ghost's grave, she'd be a sister. She thought she was going out there all alone, but unbeknownst to her, I was sneakily following her. I mean, someone had to witness her actually doing it. We wouldn't take her word for it. And if she couldn't follow through with the initiation, she was out of the sorority. The girl's name was Patty Wilcox. She was very friendly with a bubbly personality. She was the kind of girl who made everyone around her feel good. She all but aced her other initiations. I had no doubt she would conquer this one as well. I watched on, hidden behind the massive trunk of an ancient tree. She was dressed in a white nightgown that was part of the ritual. I could tell she was hesitant and a little spooked, but the Gulahi Cemetery is scary as hell, so that was normal. Patty did as she was told. She gingerly stepped down a few feet into the sunken grave and sheepishly laid herself down onto the likely cold, damp soil. And there she stayed. My plan was to stay there for about an hour, 
to make sure she didn't leave. Then I'd head over to an all-night diner and get some grub before returning for the remainder of the night. It was nearing the hour mark and I was trying to decide between the two best all-night diners in the area when I about jumped out of my skin. I heard a screeching holler coming from the grabbing ghost's grave. It was Patty. She was screaming out in terror. She was trying to stand up and get out of the grave, but she kept falling back down. And that's when I saw it. The hand. It was a hand reaching out of the grave. It had a hold of Patty's nightgown. I freaked out. In hindsight, I should have run to Patty to help her. But instead, I jetted to my car and floored it all the way back to the sorority. I told the other girls what was happening and we all went back to the cemetery together. We rushed to the gravesite and found Patty lying on her back on top of the grabbing ghost's sunken grave. Her face was frozen in a scream. Her eyes were wide open and lifeless. She was dead. Evidently, it was a heart attack likely brought on by the fear and shock of the hand reaching up from the grave and grabbing her. Upon closer inspection, one of the sorority sisters noticed that there was a tree branch tangled in Patty's nightgown. This led them to conclude that Patty mistook the tree branch for a hand and was so terrified that she had a coronary and died on the spot. I tried to explain to them that it wasn't a tree branch. It was a hand. However, the branch in question had various twisted limbs at its end that from a distance gave the appearance of a clenched fist. All of my sorority sisters assume I simply mistook the tree limb for the grabbing ghost. But they're wrong. I was there. I know what I saw. It was no tree branch that reached up and grabbed Patty Wilcox on that fateful night. It was a hand. I'll go on believing that until my dying day. This episode is brought to you by Horror Quickies. If you like horror anthology books, this is for you. Over 80 tales of terror told in a true story style that will curdle your blood and send shivers down your spine. Horror Quickies, the complete series, is only $2.99 on Amazon or free if you have Kindle Unlimited. Go to Amazon.com and search for Horror Quickies or just go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash books The Magic Club I'm a reporter for a newspaper in Chicago. I mostly write fluff pieces. I cover city council meetings, do rudimentary interviews with local politicians, cover new business openings, and occasionally write feel-good human interest stories. It's all quite boring. I got my degree in journalism because I wanted to be a true investigative journalist. I found out late in the game that such journalists don't really exist anymore. Mostly we're just megaphones for deceitful political agendas and a front for marketing gimmicks. 
I refuse to be part of this world. I feel like I need to take a shower every second of the day after spending so much time around such scum. I already started looking for a new career. It's a big city and although I'm young and inexperienced, I'm a smart girl. I'll figure something out. In the meantime, I hold my nose and go to work for the paper every day to support myself until I find something less nauseating to do for a living. It was nearing the end of the week when my boss called me into my office. I wondered what kind of sleep-inducing assignment I was going to get next. To my surprise, my boss explained to me that it was a light week for news and he didn't have anything for me but he had space for a 2,000-word article that he needed to fill. Come up with something interesting. Have some fun. Wow. For the first time since being employed by this detestable newspaper, I finally had the opportunity to do some investigative reporting. I always thought it would be fun to investigate an urban legend to try to find out its origins and how much truth there was to it. So I began scouring through Chicago's deep rabbit hole of various urban legends. One legend kept popping up that intrigued me. The Magic Club. Legend had it that there was a magic club located in the dark shadows of the city. In the early 1920s, the club was used by up-and-coming magicians to test their latest acts against a live audience. But sometime in the 1940s, the club's entertainment took a dark turn and became popular with audiences who were seeking nefarious entertainment. This involved complex magic tricks that would often go wrong, resulting in the death of the magician's assistant. By the 1960s, the tricks involving death were not accidental at all. They were expected and part of the allure. Due to the murderous nature of the Magic Club, it was forced to go underground. Figuratively speaking, of course, but perhaps even literally, for there was no evidence that the club ever truly existed. Over the years, several people have come forward saying that the legend of the Magic Club was true and that they had been in the audience and witnessed unspeakable acts of terror. One of the major aspects of the urban legend is that all of the credible witnesses who dared to step forward and claim that the Magic Club was real went missing shortly thereafter. This indicates that someone or something wants the Magic Club to stay hidden and will do whatever it takes to prolong the clandestine nature of the mysterious club. As the urban legend goes, those who seek to investigate the Magic Club's legitimacy will find their end before they find the truth. I took that as a challenge. I dove headfirst into the investigation. Most urban legends have some kernel of truth to them. It was that kernel I was after. The investigation proved more difficult than I expected. I thought for sure I'd find hordes of people who had interesting specific tidbits about the Magic Club. It was those massive tidbits I was planning on searching through to find trends and potential facts that would lead me to the truth. But the information I was gathering was vague. Several people had heard of it, but nothing more. A few people said they knew somebody who knew somebody who was there, but didn't offer up any specifics about their experiences. Zeroing in on the location of the Magic Club was even more frustrating. The handful of people who claimed to know the whereabouts of the club were imprecise. 
somewhere on the south side, somewhere on the west side, somewhere in the suburbs, somewhere in the sewer. None of it was helpful. I decided to turn my attention to magicians around the city, and that's when things started to get interesting. I managed to line up an interview with the great Zapita, a local magician who had toured the world. He was a jolly fellow, very funny and all smiles. That is, until I brought up the magic club. That's when his smile disappeared and he cut the interview short. And by cutting the interview short, I mean he immediately stood up from the table and hurried out of the room without saying another word. I had a similar incident when I went to the office of Paul Judd, a comedian-slash-magician who was popular in the city. I didn't beat around the bush with him. I told him I was investigating the validity of the Magic Club. He stared at me coldly for a moment before holding up a hand, shaking his head, and walking away. Everyone I talked to, whether they were a magician, an employee of a magician, or even the owner of a magic shop, would instantly clam up the second I mentioned the Magic Club. The most famous magician in the city was known as the Amazing Mr. Magic. He was an elderly gentleman who had long since retired from the magic game. I found out where he had lunch and tipped the host a few bucks to seat me near him. I waited until he was nearing the end of his meal and then went to his table. Excuse me, but aren't you the Amazing Mr. Magic? He smiled. Why, yes, young lady, I am. He seemed delighted that someone recognized him. I told him I was a big fan, but then immediately switched the topic to the Magic Club. As with the others, his demeanor instantly changed. No, I never heard of such a place. Now please leave me alone. But I couldn't even get a second word out before the amazing Mr. Magic stood up and erupted, flipping the table over toward me. Get the hell out of here! Get away from me! I startled and instantly ran out of the restaurant away from the old man's fury. Why were all of these magic-related people so troubled by me asking about the magic club? I sat down at the counter of a small local diner and had a cup of coffee and a sandwich while I sifted through the small amounts of notes I had trying to figure out how to stretch it all into 2,000 words. That's when I heard the man a few seats down from me. I turned in his direction. He was a slender man in his 60s. He was wearing a raggedy suit and throwing down a few dollars of cash next to the crumbs on his plate. He stared forward as he spoke to me in a soft tone. It's real, you know. Excuse me? The Magic Club. I hear you've been asking around. A jolt of excitement rushed through my body. Finally, I had someone who might have some information about the elusive Magic Club. Yes, I am. Can you tell me about it? He continued to avoid contact with me, looking in the opposite direction as he slid a small notebook card on the counter in my direction. With that, he got up and quickly exited the diner. Wait! He was gone before I could say another word. I reached over and picked up a note card he slid my way. Scribbled across the top was the address 1634 Racine. 11 o'clock p.m. To say I was intrigued was an understatement. I didn't hesitate to show up at the address at the allotted time. 
I waited outside a quiet apartment complex for 10 minutes when a large black car pulled up and the mechanical buzz of the passenger side window being rolled down filled the crisp night air. I bent down to see a man wearing a ski mask and a leather jacket in the driver's seat. There didn't appear to be anyone else in the vehicle. He spoke sharply to me. Get in. Now, this was getting fishy and I was reluctant to take it any farther. Who are you? Do you want to see the Magic Club or not? Well, yes. Then get in. I thought for a few seconds. Did I want the story this bad? Five more seconds and I leave for the Magic Club with or without you. I guess I did because I found myself rushing to get in the car with this strange man. The man drove on without saying a word. My instinct was to break the awkward atmosphere by making small talk, but the hard glare of his eyes made me feel like it was best just to keep my mouth shut. He drove for approximately 20 minutes, and I noticed that we were in a very seedy section of the city. Lots of vacant lots. Old furniture was strewn about, some of it being used as fuel for bonfires that were warming local winos. And there were a lot of intimidating figures lurking in the shadows of dilapidated buildings. I was getting nervous. He pulled up in front of a long since abandoned theater. The massive rusted marquee was hanging lopsided. Empty light sockets lined the marquee that still housed a few broken letters. In its heyday, the marquee must have been a magnificent sight. Now it was nothing more than a relic of a time long since past. The ski-masked driver pointed to the main entrance, which was now just a couple of darkened, partially boarded-up doors. Knock on the door. The password is Abracadabra. Is this the Magic Club? I leave in five seconds. If you're still in the car with me, I take you back where I picked you up. Your choice. I let out a deep breath to relax my nerves. I came this far, I was going to see this through. I exited the dark vehicle and he instantly sped away leaving me all by my lonesome outside the foreboding theater. I stood staring at the gloomy entrance for several seconds. The sound of a bottle being dropped on the pavement from a nearby alleyway motivated me to move quickly to the door and knock. I was rather shocked when a well-groomed man in a tuxedo opened the rickety door. He simply stood smiling at me as if waiting for me to speak. Oh, you want the password, don't you? If you'd like. Abracadabra. The man's smile grew. Thank you. I stepped inside the theater and I felt as though I had been transported into another time. The theater was immaculate, clean and bright with vintage decor. A bright red carpet blanketed the empty lobby. An usher dressed as though it were the 1950s motioned me toward the set of doors. The show is about to start, miss. As I approached the usher, I noticed the large poster next to the doors that presented the act for the night. It was a magician simply referred to as Orlock. The usher opened the door and I stepped into the theater, which was much more of an intimate setting than I was expecting. It couldn't have held more than 200 seats. The stage was small and crept close to the first row. Nonetheless, the place was packed, and my jaw dropped when I scanned the audience. 
Every magician in the world seemed to be there. Seriously, think of a magician, any magician, and they were there in the audience awaiting the arrival of Orlock. The usher led me to my seat. It was an aisle seat midway in the theater. I had only been seated for a few seconds when the house lights went down and a thudding voice came over the speakers. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Magic Club is proud to present Orlock. The audience roared with approval as Orlock took the stage. Orlock was a tall figure dressed in black. He was bald and pale. His eyes were black and beady, and his skeletal fingers were unusually long. He wasted no time in getting to his first magic trick. His assistant, a lovely lady in a sparkling leotard, wheeled up an upright coffin with the hole where the face would be. The body of the casket had a huge heart painted over the middle of it, and there was a large hole through the center of the heart. Orlock motioned to his assistant and she entered the coffin, after which he shut the door behind her. Her face could be seen through the opening and she appeared nervous as Orlock placed a large stake in the hole of the heart and then proceeded to pound the stake into the hole with a sledgehammer. The assistant let out a shriek of terror and began spitting out blood before drooping forward, her eyes still open but lifeless. The audience erupted with applause and Orlock bowed as other assistants wheeled the coffin and supposed dead woman off the stage. I was surprised at the ovation the trick got. I mean, it wasn't really a trick at all. It was more like a special effect and not an impressive one at that. I mean, she just spit out a bunch of fake blood. Next, Orlock's assistants pushed a clear tank filled with water onto the stage. Another attractive assistant in a swimsuit stepped up to Orlock and allowed herself to be handcuffed and her ankles chained together. She was then lifted in the air by a crane and lowered into the water. Upon being submerged, she immediately began to squirm as she attempted to free herself from the handcuffs and chains. I could see a genuine expression of terror come over her face as she realized she couldn't break free. Her eyes widened in fear and large bubbles escaped from her mouth as she panicked and wriggled around helplessly in the water. The disturbing scene was apparently amusing to Orlock as he let out a hearty chuckle which was shared by the giggling audience. I didn't get it. What was so funny about a woman pretending to drown? After a few minutes, the woman went limp as if dead and the audience cheered. The only impressive thing about that so-called trick was that the woman did appear to hold her breath for a long while. Most people in the same position truly would have drowned. After the water tank was removed, Orlock held a gun up in the air and yelled out, The bullet trick. The audience let loose with enthusiastic applause. Orlock pulled a volunteer out of the audience. The particular volunteer was one of the most famous magicians in the world. Orlock proceeded to pull a bullet out of the gun's chamber. Please shine the bullet. Orlock handed the bullet to the incredibly famous volunteer, who then signed it. From there, Orlock placed the bullet back into the chamber of the gun and pointed it at another beautiful female assistant who was standing across the stage. Before pulling the trigger, 
Orlock turned to the audience. She'll catch the bullet with her head. With that, the trigger of the gun was pulled, and the loud bang reverberated through the theater as the assistant's head thrust back in an odd way before she plummeted to the floor. Again, applause from the audience. I didn't get it. I watched on as Orlock pulled out a knife, bent down next to his allegedly dead assistant, and began digging the knife deep within the woman's face. Blood was spurting everywhere, causing the audience to ooh and ah. Finally, Orlock dug his fingers into the dead woman's face and retrieved the bullet. He wiped the bullet off on his suit and then handed it to the famous magician. Is that your signed bullet? The famous magician smiled and held up the bullet. It is. The audience gave a standing ovation as Orlock bowed. Meanwhile, two people grabbed the dead assistant by the ankles and removed her from the stage. I could see the woman's face, or what was left of it, quite well. It was disgustingly mangled, and it looked so real. Too real. Orlock shouted out to the audience, Who wants to see me saw a lady in half? The audience exploded in applause, cheers, and whistles. Once they simmered down, Orlock gazed around at the empty stage. It seems I have killed all my assistants. I'll have to have a volunteer from the audience. A hush quickly fell over the audience and all of their heads turned toward me at once. These people, many of who I recognized, were staring at me so icy with such hatred. This was just getting so weird. I decided I had plenty for my story at this point and got up to run out of the magic club. But before I could stand, I felt a hand on my shoulder. I looked up to see the amazing Mr. Magic. He was smiling. Now you'll find out what the magic club is all about. Two ushers emerged from behind him and grabbed me. I started to scream and yell for help as they drug me to the stage. The audience found this amusing and cackled with delight. The ushers shoved me into the box. They fastened me in. My head was sticking out of one end and my feet out of the other. I peered over to Orlock who was now holding a chainsaw. It appears I have a willing assistant. He pulled the cord on the chainsaw and it roared to life. I could see the chain on the blade spinning as Orlock positioned himself beside me. The audience was in a frenzy, standing, cheering, and chanting, saw her in half, saw her in half. I let out a panicked shriek as the chainsaw's murder blade struck the box. I could feel myself shaking and could smell the aroma of burning wood as sawdust spewed over the stage. As the sawdust turned into a red, thick liquid, I felt a sharp, jagged pain in my side, and my vision became distorted as I bounced around. I could feel my flesh being ripped apart and my ribs cracking. I was still alive when the chainsaw was turned off and the box I was inside was separated into two pieces, revealing my dripping innards to the audience. The last thing I saw before I died were my intestines spilling out onto the stage floor while the audience applauded.
hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com Sign up for our newsletter and I'll give you some free stuff. We'll see you soon. Very soon. Here's a super fun way to support the show. Go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash store and buy some Maniac on the Loose merchandise. Let the world know you're a listener. T-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, hats, mugs, there's a bunch of items to choose from. And you have a multitude of design choices, including all of my book covers. Go take a look. It's super cool. Go on. Do it. Right now. Go. ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash store.